Hello, welcome to episode 116 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. How are you lot? I've got a couple of announcements before we get on to the episode. Firstly, I finally added some intro music. You probably noticed. Regular listeners would have heard it on the last episode, but I got hold of it quite late, so I didn't have time to work it into the chat. The music is taken from a track called Moon Museum, recorded exclusively for us by an artist called Snazzy Rat. If you like what you hear and want to listen to more by old Snazzy, then get yourself over to his Bandcamp page. See the episode description. The next piece of news is very exciting. We're publishing an anthology later this year to coincide with the fourth anniversary of the podcast series. I'll return at the end of the episode with a list of the poets involved, but they've all appeared on the podcast and they're all excellent. And the majority of the poems are previously unpublished, so there's lots of new work there. The book, titled Why Poetry, will be out September 27th through Verve Poetry Press for £9.99 pence, which is very reasonable. There's also going to be a deal whereby if you pre-order it, you'll get free delivery. The bargains never end. And as well as through the website, you'll obviously be able to buy the book in, uh, I was going to say, all good bookshops. Hopefully it'll be available in the rubbish ones as well. For more information, get yourself over to Verve's website or click the link in the episode description. It's going to be a really fantastic book and the level of poetry in it is very high. So, on to today's episode. It is in two parts. Come out later, I chat briefly to C.I. Marshall at Verve Poetry Festival in Birmingham. Uh, You see, pieces in the jigsaw. It's all making sense now. First up, though, is me in conversation with Ross Sutherland. We met up at Ross's home in Peterborough, an area of England that is hard to pinpoint. It's not quite the Midlands, not quite East Anglia, and they really don't like it if you give up and say it's near Cambridge. We met in June this year to talk about his award-winning podcast series, Imaginary Advice. If you haven't listened to Imaginary Advice before, you're really missing out. It's an amazing exploration into what can be achieved when music, voice distortion and brilliant story writing and telling are combined. It's an oasis in the desert of long-form interview podcasts, true crime stuff and, let's face it, men shouting over each other. It was fascinating hearing how this medium is now shaping the way Ross writes and the way he's now thinking about performing. His best fiction win at this year's British Podcast Awards was very much deserved. If you enjoy this chat or anything else we do, then do tell people about us. It really is the best way for us to reach new listeners. Here's Ross. My name is Ross Sutherland. Uh, This poem is called In Which I Confess to Many Murders. On the way back, 
from my latest murder. I pause on the bridge to marvel at the possibility that I, Ross G. Sutherland, may never be held accountable for my crimes. Despite the near constant references to my murders within my poetry, the names of my victims disclosed in full, along with burial locations and instruments of death. In my early work, I was cautious. I used to telegraph my latest atrocity with nothing more than a red object placed in the still life of each poem. An Irish setter by the fire, a chili discovered on a mahogany floor, Ryan Giggs eating a Kit Kat. Over time, I learnt to fit each text with a pressure trigger, ready to pop should the poem be critiqued and spill its fetid cargo, e.g. my poem about a hot air balloon in Somerset, published in Views 2012, can actually be reversed like a sports jacket, transforming into a confession about throwing a postman off a viaduct. But I gave up on metaphor when winter came. The ground was too hard, my voice gained a new sincerity. These days, I plainly describe my homicides to groups of serious young men and women at the Oldbra Poetry Festival. So, I say, here's another one about a guy I killed in cold blood. After readings, I move to the door and wait for the police, occasionally selling a book or two. Each sale, I presume, will be the last. On the flyleaf, I write, Dear reader, I wanted to stop so many times. But why the fuck should I do the critic's job for them? Thank God it is finally over. And yet it never is. I hate my audience for not picking up on all these murders, but murdering them directly would be cheating. I think we can all agree on that. At night, after my reading, I walk the seafront between vast black hotels that shrink and expand with the moon. I am shit at skimming stones, but I like to do so anyway. Sometimes I hear a police siren in the distance, like an audience member with an annoying laugh, slowly fading into the hills. <laughs> Thank you very much, Russ. Um, this doesn't happen to me very often, but uh, I sort of assumed I was going to be biting my lip through um, whatever you were reading and trying not to laugh. Not, I normally don't corpse, but I nearly went then. Uh, That's really good. We're going to start. I'm, well, I'm going to start off by saying congratulations on your recent British Podcast Award. Oh, cheers! Win Thanks, dude. In the best fiction category, is that? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Which, I, yeah, you know, like, and you could you could argue that uh, my podcast is not a uh, a fiction podcast. Because uh, it, it sort of covers a bunch of stuff. I tell stories yes, on it. Yeah. It's definitely there's fiction inside it. But it's also got kind of essay writing in it. And it's also got poetry in it as well. But there is, there's never going to be a category which actually like I fit into sort of like well. So it, that was the closest, I think. How does it feel to be the best UK liar that has a podcast? <laughs> Very good. Yeah, absolutely. That is how I should introduce myself. You know, like, well, you know, like, you know, like I, I really love being able to like increase the um quality of a lie with uh you know with, with some uh with some sound production i really like the editing part actually that that that's kind of become like my new kind of passion the amount of stuff you can kind of solve or 
realize a bit of right about a bit of writing when you've kind of got to kind of just like listen to yourself saying it over and over and over again yeah i'm should say now that your podcast is called imaginary advice and i don't know if you had this but there are a couple of podcasts that i like and i really hope that there's a large crossover between my listeners and their listeners because i sort of want the same people that like that thing that i like to like what i'm doing yeah 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 absolutely and i, and I would hate to think that people that are really into imaginary advice think that I'm a prick. <laughs> <laughs> they don't think that. They don't think that. I can, gar- I yeah, can yeah, guarantee yeah. they don't, they don't yeah, think yeah. You're, 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 you're a prick, Davey. Yeah. <laughs> but do you have that relationship with other podcasts as well, where they, you sort of wonder about their listeners and the life behind the podcast? Yeah, I do. I'm really obsessed right now with this Twin Peaks podcast from Brighton called Diane. I just love it. I think it's, it because it's, it's so much more than a podcast about Twin Peaks. Um, it's much more about using some of the elements of Twin Peaks to talk about mythology and psychology and to really get explore like a whole bunch of different stuff. And it's really, really well researched and also seems to have this core of obviously like a big big following behind it of of, of, sort of twin peaks fans are uh, both over here and you know like over the world yeah well i suppose with any podcast like after listening to it for a little while you do build up that kind of like intimate relationship with you know these voices that you've never actually met right you know like i use podcasts at my most fragile and intimate moment you know like it's usually I mean, like, yes, like walking to work and when like I'm stuck on a train and like in the bath and like when I'm going to bed, it's kind of, you know, like it's these kind of like quite sensitive moments that I then go like, oh, I need to shut out the noise. Let's listen to somebody else. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I've convinced myself that they're my mates, you know, and uh, yeah, and I want everyone who listens to my show to listen to theirs. And uh, I wish it was the other way around as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to clarify, I'm from South London and I don't care if anyone thinks I'm a prick anyway. Mm. And I sort of was born into that acceptance that people probably do think. <laughs> and you sort of have to ride it out, so that's fine. But from... No, I'll tell you what we'll do. Maybe you could just give a brief description of, of a bit deeper into what imaginary advice is when sure. it started and why it started. And Yeah, so I mean, I started it um, about four years ago as well, but same as you. Yes. It? And... Uh, yeah, for me, I don't know. I've had, as a writer, because I've been a writer for, you know, about like 15, 16 years, and at least like 10 of that's been without like a day job, which basically means kind of like frantically trying to like piece together enough like small bits of work to stay afloat. The longer you do that, the harder it is to kind of go back and to sort of like to undo that that particular mistake i had over the course of those years just created all these very very small little commissions which were for like a particular project which had been released maybe heard by like you know 30 people and then had sort of n- never had like another purpose for them again and i was feeling increasingly like the sort of platforms that were available to me as a, as as a writer, as a performer or poet as well, if you want to call it that, you know, like we're actually quite limited. You know, if you want to stand up and do uh, a 
poetry reading as part of like an ensemble bill, then maybe you're going to get 20, 25 minutes uh, to read something that fits in that environment. Or, uh, you know, maybe uh, an essay commissioned or uh, a poem in a magazine. But like the boxes are still quite rigid there. And so I really wanted to find a place where I could take all those commissions and put them into like a new place where they could kind of grow a little bit and sort of connect them to like my main body of work. So it started like that. I had a couple of like anecdotes and poems and stories that I then sort of recorded for the podcast. And I found it just so, I don't know what the word is. I mean, it was, it opened up uh, so much for me about like what I could do as a, as a writer and the idea that I could have like something which was basically like an essay, but then in the middle of that essay, I could drop like a poem into it. And the poem then sort of functions like this little bit like a dream sequence. It enables me to like tackle like the same questions, but in a sort of different type of language and a, with a different kind of logic and finding out like ways of kind of, yeah, of like putting together different styles of writing became really exciting to me. Obviously, our podcasts are very different in style, but it seems as though they started for the Not only did they start at the same time, because I actually remember the first few episodes going out and Dan Cockerell was saying to me, have you, have you heard Imaginary Vice? Because he's been uh, listening right from the beginning and he sort of mentioned it to me. Uh, Dan, for those who don't know, Dan Cockerell is one of the gang that started Bang Said the Gun in London, yeah. which is really great. He's one of the, na- the navigators. Yeah. So there's that aspect of you just wanting to find a space to archive some work yeah. and just have it there and publicly available. But the reason I started these interviews was because I used to write reviews of spoken word events. And I was given quite generous word counts, like 1,500 words in a review, which is a lot to put down. But I still found that limiting. And I just wanted my own space where I could decide if I wanted to go on for another 10 minutes, I could because no, who was going to stop me? Yeah. People might press stop and stop (laughs) listening. But at least I had that space to go. So it's, it's a bit sort of, there's, of course, with all of these projects, there's a certain amount of ego attached to it. But. At what point did it stop being a place to put old work and a, and a and a space for you to actually try and do something new? I don't know. It's a good. I think it has been like a gradual, like parallel processing thing. But you, I mean, you're absolutely right about like just that that freedom to kind of keep going and to see what comes out. And like for me, you know, like it is is about also this idea that like in a podcast through sort of like sound design how you can, you know, yes, you can you can use music and you can use, uh, you can create kind of like audio beds, um, but you can also do like really crazy stuff with time. You can have like two scenes happening in two completely different time periods, like overlapping with each other. It's something that like, just from like listening to like Radiolab, you're just like, oh my gosh, like they are able to have like three different environments, which we are moving between in conversations uh, happening over the top and you can still distinguish them. And even through having like my voice and slightly EQing my voice differently was able to kind of like help weave together different kind of voices. And I think the more I found that I could almost like save bits of writing, which I'd done, which didn't really make sense. And I was able to kind of like use that sound design to kind of pull them apart. Then that gave me the tools to kind of, to think more in those terms and to create stuff more sort of bespoke in that format. I think the difference for me also was like, I fell in love with it because it felt like all the best parts of stage 
on all the best parts of what I get from the page. You know, so like from the stage, it, it, it got to be in my voice and it got to be, you know, you got to hear like me kind of come through the writing and to give it that extra vector, I think was like, was something that I really missed on the page uh, and simultaneously. But what you got from the page, I think in radio is that, that intimacy, you know, like that idea of just like it feeling like a one-to-one -one conversation with, with, with someone else. And, you know, I think is that, that Ira Glass quote about, it's, it's about, it's in relation to telephones, but he talks about telephones, but like, you know, you're the most intimate form of communication because you're like you're literally like whispering in someone's yes, ear yeah, yeah. but he's really talking about radio there and like like yeah I, I think that like that level of of like intimacy you don't necessarily get in a gig you know unless it's got the gig's going really badly and there's just one person in the audience which yeah you know happens uh but yeah i think that those the, marrying together those two just made me like yeah fall in love with the form yeah, because I mean, even the biggest sort of stage stars, when they perform, they're never going to perform a gig where a hundred percent of people in the room have come purely for them. You know, people are going to be there with their partners, or they're going to be there with their friends, and just sort of giving someone a chance. And that doesn't happen with podcasts. If someone keeps listening to your podcast, yeah. it means they've chosen to keep you. Often, like you're saying, maybe through earbuds, on a you know, in a public place, they've chosen to sort of slide off with you yeah with them whispering in your ear and it's a completely different thing isn't it but my question about that would be where do you see your natural home if you had an unlimited budget would you be trying to do this on stage and is it is it how much of it is that this is an affordable way of developing these ideas i think maybe that's maybe that's how it started because then simultaneously like um you know i've made theater and the theater which i've made was you know like was meant to be the same thing was meant to be taking like stuff that i liked about poetry but then like expanding it in a different format but but theater actually has a completely different set of protocols and stuff like that i mean everything in theater is a metaphor right or so everything's a metaphor for something else that's not necessarily the same way that i would treat uh creating like a like a radio story and you've got i don't know I these days, yeah, I, I I would say, no, I think, I think audio is is the form for me, and I'm I'm doing some live shows of the podcast over the summer, so I'll be able to tell you better, I think, in a couple of months' time, and I mean I'm going to enjoy that because I've missed live audiences, and there's definitely things that I like doing with video as an element that I miss working in. In, in, in this format for the, for the podcast. But yeah, I, I kind of feel that, you know, like I finally, you know, when I was like 35, I finally found the style of, of, of writing that I, that I really like. So, you know, I got there in the end. I guess, well, I couldn't have found it that much sooner. Because yes, yes. like I, I wouldn't have been able to, well, afford the kit or it didn't exist. So I mean, I'm, I'm, be, I'm being quite careful up. for this to not sort of geek out into like a podcast chat, but, <laughs> but there, there are very serious considerations there, aren't there? Like we were just having a brief chat about which type of editing software we both use. Yeah. And it's only been very recently in the last couple of years that really affordable versions of very, very good editing uh, suites have become available to, to producers and the artists, because that, that's something that's interesting about, podcasting i think is that 
the artists have become the producers almost yeah. exclusively in a way that you can't do in other mediums, you know, unless you've got a huge budget yeah. or you're a stand-up yeah. and you don't need anything other than a microphone in a room. Yeah. And even that, you need to get around the country, presumably, yeah. and you need to publicise it and you need to pay for advertising. But this, that we're both sort of deeply engaged in, it, it feels much more egalitarian as long as you've got the, the initial income to buy some equipment and stuff. But yeah, but it's but you but you know like if you've got a smartphone, even the, my my first couple of episodes are recorded on my smartphone, sat in my wardrobe, and uh, you know and I edited on GarageBand, which came through. I suppose I've still got the laptop, but you know yeah, like like it does it does feel like we're in the middle of this this huge boom of that, and. I love live gigs, but like touring becomes like increasingly hard. And I think it did also come as a result of, you know, I, I ran a, a night at Bethnal Green Working Men's Club for six or so years with a group of poets, uh, which was called Homework, where we set ourselves like a new writing exercise uh, every month. And it was great for us. It was the reason that we kept writing. It gave us new deadlines. Yeah, it was, it was so important to me. But like, as it got harder for everybody to be able to clear enough space in their diary to be able to do that, even though we knew it was good for us, but it's, it's you know, what diaries are like and just life in general. It just couldn't continue. But then radio, well, I call it radio. It's not even really radio, is it? It's not radio at all. But like podcasting basically means that like I get, you know, a gig once a month with about, yeah, 700 people and I can sort of pay myself a little bit for it. Yeah. We might come on to those issues a bit later, but it's odd how things or the coincidences when I have guests on the on the podcast. So I don't particularly plan which poet should follow which because it's all down to people's diaries and when they can do interviews. And I try to keep a mix of guests, but often it's other factors that dictate that. But I'm going to have to do that weird podcast thing where I'm going to say that my latest episode, which hasn't gone out yet, but my latest episode, as you're listening now, my latest episode is with Jane Ye. Mm. Um, oh, I love The Ninjas. It's fantastic. Such a great book. And I'm really excited about the... the she's got a book coming out next uh, in March in 2019 as well, so she's working on her third collection. But we talked a lot about how she's a fiction writer, first and foremost, and there's that very real sort of... There's a, that aspect of her poetry where she's assuming characters and it's really fiction-based, so it's odd that you're back to back and there was no actual decision there so my guests have gone sort of confessional 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 fiction <laughs> fiction and it's a really nice break because it, i think i mentioned this in the last conversation but it's easy i think as a um, i don't like this term but an emerging writer to perhaps think well if it's not confessional it's not going to get picked up it's not going and where's the space to just play around yeah yeah i mean in relation to that i mean i i mean i did some teaching not that long ago for a group of like young writers emerging writers who are probably all like 18 to sort of 21 and all of them in their sets pretty much had like a poem about the most traumatic thing that had happened in their life to, to that point and like they were like in intense intense things and like i'm presuming somewhere along the line in the workshops that they've run so, you know, like someone has kind of encouraged them to kind of do that. But then like I saw like it was got towards the end of the week and it was like we were going to have like a uh, kind of like a show and tell come read a poem. And like there was like one one poet. She was just like, 
I just can't keep getting on stage and saying this. And it's just like, yeah, right. It's not, if you are a performer, then it's Groundhog Day and you are forcing yourself back there again and again and again. It's not like, oh, it was cathartic to write it. Now it either goes in a drawer or goes in a book and I'm glad I got it out there. And, you know, like, but it's like, no, you have to relive that moment again and again. And when does that stop being cathartic and liberating and when is it become this kind of repetition compulsion or you're just stuck with it and I feel you know gosh I mean yeah so I, I you know like I have sympathies for anyone who's been working in confessional for a long time who then goes like I I want to kind of change voice here a little bit or do something else I think it's hard isn't it to redirect that mirror yeah. You know, whichever mirror we're, whichever way we're choosing to yeah. shine our creative practice. Yeah. And, um, because it will always be about you. Yes. The party can't start without you, right? Like, it, it, how, whatever it's about, it will still be about you. But yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it's, it, it, it's, it's tricky I, because these things form really early on in like what our entire relationship with writing is, right? It's, it's kind of, it's really deep down in the psyche as to like, what it is about about the art form that that makes you happy yeah because i suppose with imaginary advice I, I suppose every time i say it, i keep hearing the the, the hear my, the, my, my weird robot voice yeah yeah <laughs> i couldn't put it better than that yeah your re- weird robot voice people are gonna have to go and check out imaginary advice and i'm i've got stuck in my head but I suppose what people are tuning in for is that there's a, a real variety across the right, the type of writing and the way things are recorded and the way things are presented. But there are, are repeat characters, if you like, yeah. and I presume they're facets of your uh, personality and, uh, and who you are and your identity. And one thing that I find really fascinating, maybe because it reflects something deeply in me, is the sort of slightly neurotic writer that's breaking down throughout the presentation of the piece and the, <laughs> and the repetition of these things and i was just wondering that so from that perhaps i mean i'm making an assumption here you can just say i'm wrong if you if i, if I am but that sort of seemingly blending the confessional not confessional but sort of the inward looking yeah with the fictional and whether you feel like that could ever work on stage or whether that's purely a sort of something that you can only develop through a, a trust with a listener perhaps mm, yeah that's that's interesting i think i i think in terms of like combining half truth with you know like with fiction i mean that is something that i feel i do on stage and partly it's for that reasons that we were just talking about is that it's like if i have to get on stage every day for 24 days of like the edinburgh fringe I'm gonna twist the truth to protect myself. And like, I know the truth when I say it, even if I'm saying the other version of it, but I want to give myself a little bit of distance. I want to be, I wanna be the character because if you're a live performer, I don't know, I that level of like sheer, complete honesty and fragility, particularly going up in front of a crowd that as you said, may not all be there for you. 
they're not necessarily your mates. You <laughs> like when they come in, they're like, you know, like some will know your stuff and will be giving you the benefit of a doubt. Some people, yeah, are just are here almost like against their will. And that's a particularly poetry. Like if we're talking oh, about yeah. solely poetry audiences, they're not the most <laughs> supportive of people. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 it, this is the problem, isn't it? We've got such a broad church that, like that kind of, yeah, that we have a lot of factionalism, and uh, we, you know, like there's not really a huge amount to unite us because we're effectively all. It, it's this nebulous kind of grey area in between lots of other art forms you know where lots of people are kind of like almost like passing through or like like ideas start off as poems and then go actually then crystallise into like other stuff but it's that in that weird grey area y yeah when someone says to me there's a poetry night on near me do you think I should go to it I'm just like no I mean like you should find out who's on the bill and google them and listen to their stuff and decide because like the fact that a poetry night is on you that could be anything from kind of just like kind of like avant-garde noise poetry to kind of you know like stand up in kind of rhyming couplets to you know like i don't know to what you know like it could be anything you know do more research yes but uh, yeah no i think like, like audiences are like are, are, are camp are like an unknown quantity and it's difficult to put yourself out there like that and i think that's naturally why poets that spend a lot of time on stage callous over their actual personalities a little bit sometimes in a bad way because i think you can just become like weird exaggerations of yourself like and sometimes it's yeah things become more exaggerated uh but i think in every sort of circumstance like it helps to sort of to play a part a bit so i i feel that you know that, that does apply there it's easier on radio definitely and i do love the fact that you know with each new episode of imagine advice i try to change the format and now i've been doing it for like four years like formats are like resurfacing things that i've liked in the past that i want to kind of go back to but like that freedom is difficult to to replicate mm. i think now would be a good time to take a second reading yeah yeah absolutely Oh, okay. So this is like a like a new thing. I've only just been um, working on it this week because I've had a big break from from just writing poetry. I feel poems have sort of come out accidentally in, a, in doing other work, um, but I wanted to to kind of sit down and just like fall in love again with uh, with kind of writing for the page, writing kind of poems more in discrete units so what i've been doing is uh, at christmas i got a book off like uh family word searches and i've been taking like just one word search and then like reading along the lines and trying to kind of decipher it almost as if it was like a like a poem that had been encrypted so sometimes it's about adding letters in between or decoding in various ways so it tends to come out as like gibberish and then on the next draft i kind of push it out even more and kind of add more lines and kind of make really a bit more sense have, of it has it gone far enough have you developed any rules for yourself with it or are you just sort of just letting it flow with it i yeah the rules are sort of coming out in that i'm i've become much more comfortable with like first drafts being utter gibberish and and then but then like taking like quite a long time with the second draft and allowing myself more rules about moving lines around and 
adding new lines if necessary to help. Because I think to begin with, they were, the poems were just me trying to uh, just enjoy language. Uh, and I was, I, I sort of set myself that as like the end goal. It's just like, don't worry, Ross, you know, like just enjoy the, like the, the process. And like now some of the more recent ones have been revised enough times that actually they've turned into stories and they feel more like me in conversation with myself uh, rather than just kind of sort of deciphering. So let me read you uh, this one. It's called Wrong Secret. He woke ruffling in the patient canteen, big toe turning black. A nurse escorted him back to his lodgings like the hurried final page of someone's homework. He sat on the B-day a while and listened to the Ellen omnibus. It felt like his days were being stowed away in shipping containers, patrolled by hairy-legged stevedores. He took off his clothes and stared at the weather, the broken pines, the meditation pond vivisected by the storm. The scene was far too on the nose to appear in the memoir. His medicine was formulated to make him cringe in 15-minute intervals. Humiliation had somehow become part of the condition. To think this rehab centre was once a Montessori school full of aggressively complicated alpine wear, then later the headquarters of Monster.com. Rumour had it Vice President Edwards had grown tired of feudal obsequiousness and led a DDoS attack on his own servers. The traces remained if you knew where to look. The energy of self-sabotage ran through everything, like fibres of manganese. Off-duty nurses sold drugs behind the swimming pool. Even his therapist encouraged him to relapse, the same way art manifestos always include an ironic get-out clause. Nothing is truly valuable until it is destroyed. A life is defined in ten mistakes. Even being taken by the rapture is still technically just failing up. He wandered into the quad, comforted by the fact he was both inside and outside, like the hurried final page of someone's homework. Soon he was dreaming of a dogfight behind the Dayglow bodega, the sound of gas derricks beyond the highway, his wife wrapped in white like a statue by Bernini. He woke ruffling in the patient canteen, big toe turning black. Thank you very much. I mean, you've sort of touched on this already, and it always feels like a like a really naive question. Just a bit of history. The first question I ever asked mm. was in October 2014 to Pat Cash, and it was, why poetry, right? <laughs> and that was sort of the fundamental, that was the starting point for about well, too many interviews, right? <laughs> Before I sort of had the confidence to think of more nuanced ways of saying that. I want to change that round a bit and sort of I'd like to know where poetry starts in your writing if you know and what what do you see in in the podcast and in your own writing as being poetry because it's quite a broad term with your poetry isn't it yeah. and I'm not being sort of uh, negative I think it's a really pleasant thing that there's it's a really 
wide view of what poetry is. I think it's quite nice these days that maybe I don't have to worry so much about that. Um, and I tend to, rather than, you know, like, I would tend to say that I write poetry as opposed to I am a poet. I feel like it's a lot nicer to uh, to define myself by verbs as opposed to by the noun. I think that makes it a lot easier to a certain degree. And uh, as someone who, not so much these days, but definitely in the past, spent a lot of time doing poetry workshops in uh, in schools, sometimes with like quite young kids. But I mean, really at any age in a school, any pupil asked to write poetry, that's going to come with a lot of anxiety about like, well, who am I to kind of do that? And, you know, like part of like my role there is to basically try and just throw all of poetry under the bus and just say like, you call yourself a poet by writing and that's it. You know, like, and like you should, the the confidence which comes from just like sitting down and beginning a thought that you don't know the end of. For me, that is, that I feel is like what starts to be the sort of like the, the center of like what a poem is for me. It, it's that kind of, you know, if I was going to be like all hippie about it, it's going to much more like a, like a, like a dream space where you don't know where you're going. And you're kind of working like intuitively like into something, which is why I say that I think like almost all ideas begin for me as poems and then some kind of move off into different sort of formats. And the ones that stay as poems remain kind of crystallized in that original state uh, of, of of kind of like exploration. Yeah, that's, a, that's interesting, actually, the, the, the sort of nub or the, the essence of an idea. I think one of my biggest points of if anyone ever asks for feedback on their work especially sort of what would be considered more spoken word stuff is that the idea was good yeah it was just never an idea for a poem <laughs> and the, the fact that they stopped at a poem was what sort of um shackled that idea you know yeah. it could have gone in any in many other directions but trying to be a poet and control that idea yeah. is perhaps what let it down. Yeah, I mean, I always feel like it really helps with a poem to know what the door is, you know, you know what the way into a subject is. But I don't know which poet that says, maybe it was like Billy Collins. I don't know. Maybe he was quoting someone else about like how about how a poem tries to escape its own subject matter, and like which is why you know like when someone knows the end of a poem before they've begun it, then then I yeah then it's just like I don't think this should have. Yeah, that's the kind of yeah, work. Yeah, the build-up was just to get to that point. Yeah, that, that point. That end point. It was yeah. like, this should have been something else. That this, this, that point should have either been the start or you should have worked in a, a medium where, uh, yeah, where I feel like you could have explored that further. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's a thorny thing, isn't it, man? It's It's very, you know, like, and I suppose, you know, you probably spend like a long time specifically trying not to think about it too much at the risk of then kind of like killing any urge to do it in the I mean, in the first place. I've, throughout the 116 odd or whatever episodes, I've tried to stop myself giving caveats of what we're saying. But I think it is important in moments like this to say that if you don't agree with these ideas about your own writing, that's fine. Because out of the 200 plus guests I've had on, Everyone's got their own version of what the answers to these are. Yeah. And I think perhaps that's what stops people answering fully is because they don't want to sound like they're dictating to other writers how they should write. What I'm asking is how you feel about your own writing. Yeah. And it's not that I want answers for myself or for the listeners. It's just interesting to see how everyone works in such different ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because this is it, isn't it? It's like you, you like you. I love a very, very open definition of uh, like of, of poetry because I feel like like it's just that kind of like exploratory space. You could also say that, like you know, for me, like something becomes a poem when it's outside the flow of capital. I mean, like that. That is probably like also a bit of a like a definition of it. It's something which. <laughs> you know like um not i don't know whether therefore like if a poem is commissioned whether that means it kind of stops being a poem but uh but like certainly you know like the the less money involved in it the probably the easier it is for me to tell you whether or not it's a poem um moving on uh, and taking that idea of exploration i'm thinking definitely about specifically your podcast episodes where repetition is explored mm. how important is it for you to find and locate a breaking point in a narrative is like because it sort of almost seems like you're trying to break the piece yeah in where you're getting to and i'm thinking specifically about is it seven trips to spa oh seven yeah ways? me versus me yeah, versus sorry, spa. That's it. Yeah, and there's seven is it seven seven i think there's seven yeah. versions yeah um which is not only a particular highlight of mine of your podcast, but it's one of the best things I've listened to in ages. I really, really Thanks. do love that. And I think it, what draws me to it is that idea that it could, you could just keep doing that until it just completely broke, I mean, breaks down. And it yeah. almost does at some point yeah. as well. I mean, like, so yeah, so that's, I mean, so I'm a huge fan of the Ulipo. Um, like, that's like the origins of a lot of that stuff. And that really inspired my work. So uh, if anyone listening is not, not familiar with the the, the word, it, it, it's um, it means ouvre the literature potential. It was a group of like French writers who began in the nineteen sixties, and they set themselves up as a kind of anti surrealist movement. They didn't like the the surrealists. Well, the surrealists were saying, "Oh, we're we're accessing the, our, our unconscious minds. We're breaking through the bourgeois mindset by painting our dreams, and we're totally free." And uh, I think the Ulipo were interested in the same thing, but they were like, "No, you're not free by just." removing the rules uh you're just becoming slaves to rules in your subconscious that you don't understand so for the ulipo they flooded their work with like rule-based systems and created these kind of like all these arbitrary rules around it as ways of kind of disrupting their natural thought patterns and therefore kind of like avoiding cliche because they'd make it fiendishly hard to write by putting all these obstacles in the way and then just in the way that the mind has to think around those obstacles you'll end up in more interesting parts of your brain so that's kind of the the, uh, the, the Ulipo thing and I sort of fell in love with various techniques that they've gone and done uh, I really loved uh, univocalisms uh, which are poems that only have one vowel I find them really fun and interesting ways of uh, thinking about writing uh, but yeah, I loved uh, Raymond Cuno's exercises in style, which is exactly the same as my spa thing. And it's just a very short anecdote, which then gets told over and over again in different styles. And I think I like loops and retelling the same story over and over again from this way of like advancing a story in a kind of lateral way as opposed to a linear way. So actually like it's a very, very small text but then by re revisiting it but either in like a different genre or with a kind of slightly different angle like over and over again well i suppose you you get to explore different aspects of that same thing and yeah it is about breaking it eventually it's about exhausting as, as george Perec said wasn't it that exhausting his book was uh exhausting a place in paris where he sat in a square he was an ulipo part of that movement and 
tried to describe every single thing he saw mm. to the point where everything lost all meaning. <laughs> because if you keep, if you're actually seeing everything, you're not seeing anything. Yeah. Um, a reason I bring that up is if anyone, any listeners are interested, you can go back through the archive to somewhere in the 60s, in terms of like between 60 and 70 in episodes. There's an episode about collaboration, and I'm sure you know them both, but Sarah Lester and Nathan Pennington, Great. on the 40th anniversary of that George Brecht book, they repeated the exercise over a weekend in Hackney Town Square. Uh. And it, exhausting a place in uh, London, which is out through Burning Eye. And it's a really interesting look at how you can just exhaust an idea yeah and eventually it might loop back on it and it's all about loops isn't it because you can exhaust an idea and then suddenly by continuing with it you can re-energize it in a lot of ways i i love working uh in that kind of of way i tell you what it actually inspired me to do a lot of that kind of stuff as well does also come down from this aspect of live performance that an audience doesn't see, which is repetition, you know, like that idea that like, you know, when I've toured with like a bunch of people and we're doing like the same show every single night and you gain this kind of real, like, like granular interest in other people's performances. And when like someone else does their bit on stage that night, slightly different like that becomes like really like interesting and i think like that idea of like how through repetition like things can like shift and like change that i just absolutely love and one of the things i like about using repetition is allowing one audience member to sort of like to experience what that's like because you know when so, so I don't. I, I did this theatre piece years ago, right? And it was called "Comedian Dies in the Middle of a Joke," and it was a seven-minute show. Uh, it was set in like a working men's club. A stand-up comedian comes out on stage to do a routine. I've already told them in advance that this is actually like a reconstruction of a murder, and like this, you know, at, after seven minutes, someone in the audience like stood up and shot the comedian. But before you get to the gunshot. Um, the show stops like there's a sound like a, a record being rewound back and the entire show like resets and then everybody moves one seat along uh, and then it starts again so this time you've got a different person playing the comedian and and we're all in a different sort of space in the room the thing is the comedian is actually just an audience member as well and they're reading the the routine off an auto cue and there were various points in the script for people to heckle and the only thing that's unscripted are the heckles you know like there's a you don't you can't heckle at any point you have to heckle when it's like you're sitting in the right seat and it's and it's the right time but what you find is over like the seven performances in in one sitting but one audience has like the heckles get like smarter and smarter and funnier and funnier as people try and break the show you know like they really they know what the the comedian has to say in response to their heckle so they can make them sound even more stupid but by, by, by like saying it up and what i really loved about the idea was just like that level of prescience is that word like that they the fact that what it feels like for the audience to feel like gods of that little time they know everything that's going to happen and the confidence that comes when you know like the uh, the structure so well that even they can feel comfortable like playing with it i wonder how much of that attraction for you comes from did you have a background in fine art 
right? Is it that you studied or? Uh, no, I. Uh... <laughs> did, did you used uh... to write in Liverpool for? Did oh, I, some... I did. Um, I, I, I briefly uh, taught electronic literature, so I taught like a like a kind of like a kind of English and cultural studies course. That's when I was doing my PhD. Um, but I studied in, at UEA and did creative writing. I might just leave this bit in. I don't, like I said, I don't mind if people think I'm a prick. That's interesting, actually, because I will. I had made an assumption there, and it's in- interesting how it. I, I was wrong, right? So I was going to say that I've found with a lot of writers that have a background in having studied fine art mm. is the overlap of what happened probably in the early 70s with performance art when the process was the thing. Mm. And the final act wasn't actually part of the artist's practice. It was just the bit that sold tickets. It was the public-facing part of it. And it seems to me like with the repetition and this idea of sort of you showing your drafts is that through the podcast and through your performance work as well is that you're trying to give the audience the process as well. And yeah. yeah. it's not just a book isn't perhaps enough at the end. You know, the final piece isn't enough. You, you're inviting the audience into the process of making the piece. I mean, that is true. And, it, and, and so it turns out, yeah, no, I don't come from a background of like performance art, but like that but that is absolutely on the nose and like if i was being cynical i'd say maybe that's because deep down i secretly believe that writing poetry is more fun than 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 reading it and on a different day i might not answer that way but like i love the idea of i don't want to meet the audience at the end I don't want to like sand off all the edges and make the thing which is perfect and then hand them something which is, you know, like this completely made thing. I can't, yeah, I I sort of, I think because the journey of exploration that I go on when I write, I want them there with me as I'm kind of like exploring it. I want them to see the moment that I finally work out what it's about. And that is about opening up the process. I mean, that is partly why I like using at least, you know, sometimes in my writing career why I've really enjoyed using form is because like form writes that large you know particularly something like a univocalism where you can only write using one vowel you know like people can see you struggling to tell a story and having to find these workaround solutions to getting through scenes and they're there with you in your room writing it when they when when they see you doing that they're not being presented with uh, this kind of like perfect work of art um i guess because i i don't know for me teaching poetry to 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 young people you know like it's like that so much of the uphill struggle is basically trying to like expose the wires you know the one of the reasons why i one of the exercises i run with students is to get them to like take an existing poem and then just like write the opposite poem, you know, just like take every line and like reverse it. And some of those will be obvious of how to do. And some will be like, just really, really hard. You'll be like, Oh, what's, what's the opposite of February? I don't know. Cause I always feel that like through the act of like writing at least, well, it's like playing a musical instrument. That's right. You're like, we're going to do to begin with. You got to learn the standards. It's only through like playing and being inside a bit of music that you can kind of like work out how to do it. So I always feel like writing through learning, I think is like, is like the best way to do that. And so as much as I can make my audience also writers, then the better. 
And as you said earlier, that on a different day, you may answer these questions slightly differently. So I'm not locking you down in this one way of thinking. But but had it not been for pending the margins, and you're such as having such a large attraction to the process of things, do you think you would have found it that easy to be published? Because there aren't, it doesn't seem to be many publishers in the UK that are taking those kinds of chances on writers and allowing them to develop those ideas. In the, if you're like, like you're saying, if you're interested in what leads up to the book, yeah, more, yeah, you need a, quite an understanding publisher. You? <laughs> yeah, you do, you do. And like, I was really lucky that I met Tom at the right time in my life. You know, like I, because I, my first collection was one of the first ones that I don't think it was the first one that Pendant and Martins put out, but it was like at the very, very start of that imprint. And so I think we kind of met at that at the right sort of time. I think Tom also being someone who is not only interested in being a publisher, but also interested in uh, producing live literature and theatre and who kind of understands like this, this kind of dual process of, of kind of both finding how like page and stage fit together. No, I'm really lucky. And, you know, and, and all of the books that we've made have been, you know, like have been experiments with us, like trying to locate that voice, you know, like and trying to find ways of allowing poems to, to kind of, yeah, there's something very exploratory, I guess, about like how I try and write and, and experiments never usually, you never usually hit the ball in the middle of the bat, do you? Right. It, it, there's going to be, it's going to, there's going to be like a, like, like mixed results and yeah, like being able to, work with tom to basically help kind of like cast off the bad ones uh i, I feel uh yeah really grateful it's, I, I i presume maybe now is it maybe i don't know I, I feel maybe slightly out of touch in terms of um poetry presses yeah and what's what what, what kind of like small kind of hip young presses are, are kind of doing I'm, stuff i'm wondering actually i mean you've definitely got people like offered road books and test center test center in particular who are very interested in um producing uh vinyl lps mm. alongside that stuff the collection beautiful. of books and they're beautifully presented i'm just wondering whether because you've been involved in writing poetry and publishing poetry for a lot longer than i've been involved in doing this podcast and sort of examining it i do, I do wonder if perhaps then when you first started working with Tom, whether the, the scene was was more open to experimentation and whether it's become more unified now. It definitely does feel like there's a particular style. Yeah. And I'd be happy for people to come on the podcast and prove me wrong, but I do feel like things are becoming restricted for writers. I mean, I've always loved what Tom was doing at Penned yeah. and what the guys are doing at Test Centre because it's nice to know that there is something going on and and they're proving that you can sell books as well yeah. not only are they printing people they're not you know i'm hoping they're not, not running at a huge loss i'm hoping they're turning over and um i've gone off in a bit of a i'm rambling about no not that. at all not at all i mean that makes me i don't know like yeah it it's gosh it's it's so hard isn't it because i don't i don't really feel um at the end of the day i mean advice i always kind of give to any uh any sort of like young writer who's feeling like they're you know like the gatekeepers aren't returning their 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 calls who sort of feels that like the scene's getting smaller and smaller i mean like it is always like yeah that i i think 
was ever thus sadly you know like you know like and uh eventually i think it just comes down to kind of creating your own platform whether that's setting up your own imprint or uh running your own night or setting up like your your own podcast because you know as we said like the church of poetry is so broad that um like it's 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 so big and 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 yet like it's very hard to to join existing clubs oh and on just because i would like to give people a bit of faith and a bit of confidence if you are writing more experimentally do also check out hester glock press in bristol and dostoevsky wannabe in manchester especially if you're looking at sort of crossovers between essays prose writing and poetry they're just yeah they're great the dostoevsky wannabe stuff is like and it's all affordable and it's they're, they're trying to make accessible books by keeping i think they sell at like two percent over cost or something it's crazy you get most of their books for four or five quid off of amazon did you say they were based in manchester yeah okay that's really interesting they're fantastic they're really good um and i'm not i'm not gonna they, they, they published something of mine but no that's not why i mention them <laughs> uh they're a good publisher despite publishing me <laughs> um I suppose because we're sort of running out of time i just wonder because i'm asking these questions of myself as well with the podcast and the audio stuff if we move away from it being a podcast and this experimentation of audio and sort of musical bed and voice distortion have you tried to think of some ways that that can return to the page in any way or do you feel like that just has to be where that's the limit of it that has to be where it exists i think interesting stuff always happens at like the the boundaries between art forms and so i think like it's exciting to try uh you know i don't know what will come out of that but like i i I think i'm always interested in taking stuff that worked in in like one form and then seeing exactly what happens when you migrate it across I don't know. I think so. I think then maybe yeah, it, start, it starts to almost like blend with like art writing then, doesn't it? And, you know, like, and I think there is, that's funny because that's a world I knew absolutely nothing about. Uh, and yet I should look at because I should be looking at how art writing stuff could be translated into sound. So I, I, I you know, like I think like there is definitely loads and loads of artists uh, grouped around that area on like the other side, on the on, on the page side who are doing stuff with kind of um you know like writing over the top of other writing or kind of using uh like text in a much more experimental way uh using text with like image and stuff like that i know the sort of poem brute uh night which runs at kind of like rich mix is probably like would probably be analogous to that kind of stuff you know like in terms of uh, exploring. Yeah, my wife Lizzie and I were part of a Poem Brute event in Bristol, and actually Paul Hawkins, who is the he and his partner Sarah run Hester Glock Press. Right. And Paul has published Stephen J. Fowler, who set up Poem Brute. Um, so he put on an event in Bristol, and it was a really interesting point at which mainly performers yeah. and stage performers were encouraged to put stuff up on the walls and try and represent their vocal or audio work 
in image form because it exists in this fabulous archive online, doesn't it, Poem Brute, mm. about this, the crossover between handwriting and the spoken word and glitches and slang and broken down text and found text and uh, collage. It's an amazing project. And yep. I think perhaps it's funny that I hadn't thought of that before, but now you bring it up, that perhaps is what led me to think that I'd like to see some of imaginary advice try to return to the page because it seems like well I like ideas that uh, on the face of it seem like they won't work yeah <laughs> so there has to be something there doesn't there not too right too right yeah as I said like I think only when something becomes like like impossibly hard like like it, it does interesting sort of stuff come out of it so you know yeah exactly no, I'd like to to give that a whirl yeah yeah exactly because I think it might fail <laughs> I don't know. I should really give myself a break. I feel, you know, like just just for one year of my life, I would like to commission myself to do a project that I actually knew how to do. Uh, but uh, but yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. Okay. Unfortunately, I think we're running out of time. So before we take a third and final reading, we'll just wrap everything up. Listeners, if you want to see or find any of Ross's writing then the best place to go is to the pend in the margins website all the links i'm about to mention will be in the episode description so you can go down and click do go over and check out imaginary advice um, there's a website link to that in the episode description it's on all any podcast yeah. app that's worth its weight has got a link to both lunar poetry podcast and imaginary advice if they don't have it don't use yeah. it where you Get, find a new yeah. find a new app i don't know <laughs> what's going on um and just before we go ross is there anything you'd like to mention coming up that people uh, can catch you at? yeah I, well i'm doing a couple of sort of live versions of the podcast that's me taking a similar kind of approach to to writing which i do in a podcast and trying to move it to a live space which means using video and some other stuff as well uh, so I'm doing one at Edinburgh International Book Festival on 14th of August and then 13th of September at Anthony Burgess Foundation in Manchester and then 14th of September at London Podcast Festival. I have to say, one thing that constantly is coming up is this Anthony Burgess Centre. Right. And they seem to be having the best, but not just because you've mentioned it there, but, but uh, honestly, I just keep hearing that come up and come up. So, there seems to be a lot of stuff happening in Manchester. There's some really great publishers up there, and that Anthony Burgess Centre seems to be booking the the best people. It it's be a great it's an to... awesome space. I've only uh, done something there like once before, but um, yeah, it was just great. And already, yeah, even back then, which was like, uh, yeah, which was years ago, it it, it felt like a, a really important like meeting place mm. for for sort of writers in, in Manchester. Excellent. Um, Thank you for joining me, Ross. It's been really... This has been like, what, 18 months in the planning? Well, not, not much planning, but 18 months from yeah. first invitation. But it takes a long time to meet up sometimes. No, well, I really appreciate it, man. Thank yeah, you. Really I really enjoyed it. it. Thank you very much. Cheers. Okay, this is called uh, Dedication. <laughs> Sorry, David. Every time I look at you, David Turner, I am reminded of the first time we met there is something contemporary about my affection for you, David Turner. Everything I know about you seems new and unexpected. We look at you, David Turner. We all do. And something inside us dies with joy. You beat us mercilessly with your happiness, David Turner. 
Whenever you are photographed in Paris, you are the looker, David Turner. The Eiffel Tower behind you, retreating into the aperture. In fact, David Turner, you are so full of love that you should be renamed Paris. And Paris should be demoted to Venice. Venice would in turn become Monte Carlo. So on and so on and so on. All the way down. Luton vanishing from our maps forever. We treasure your perspective, David Turner. Even when you say things that do not make sense. Such points of view are hoarded like early forgeries of Matisse. Worth more than the original to the right collector. When you do it, it is called art. When we do it, it is called destruction of public property. And when you email a funny JPEG to your friends, I can see them going rabid with their love for you. Last night, whilst writing this poem, I scrunched up the first draft into a ball and made a perfect origami replica of your head. So realistic that I could not sleep knowing it was out there in the darkness, staring at my kitchen door through its crumpled eyes. David Turner, if you did not exist, it would be necessary to invent you. On David Turner Day, we would descend on your hometown like jackals, wearing David Turner masks from randomly chosen moments of your life. Men with hard faces would stand outside your school, selling t-shirts, detailing apocryphal statements attributed to you, David. Saving a child's life would be called going for a David Turner. And eBay would crumble under the weight of objects that you have touched. How could you be so perfect and yet refuse to stop time and let us love you forever? You with your perfect life, like one long, low-budget Richard Linklater film. You, David Turner, as cute as a duck pond, so that we must warn children against drowning in your beauty. And it is unclear yet whether you are responsible for the end of the world, David Turner, my dearest friend. This century has given us bigger mysteries, but you are its most interesting. I will spend the rest of the day trying to work out what it was I should have said to you. And for that, David Turner, I can never forgive you. Uh, dear listener, try and imagine that being read to you. <laughs> Three foot away. <laughs> that was more intimate than I even I, I, I expected. That was Ross Sutherland. If you get the chance to see him live, then take it. He's a great performer, and I'm sure his live podcast shows are going to be unforgettable. As mentioned, you can check all live dates on his website. Next up is the last of four short conversations recorded at this year's Verve Poetry Festival. And in this instalment, I chat to the winner of the Verve Poetry Competition, C.I. Marshall. It was great fun getting to know Consuelo over the couple of days that we were in Birmingham together. And listening to her talk about marathon running... San Francisco and the Playboy Club in the city was illuminating. Here's Consuelo. Or, you know, 
me again. And then Consuela. Hello, Verve. How are you doing? Hey. Come on, cheer, 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 cheer. Come on, come on, come on, come on. We're nearly there. We're nearly there. We're nearly, uh, uh, nearly free from poetry. But you've got one more bit of nonsense from me. This is the fourth and final. I'm wondering whether I should mention this because they not, might not go out in order when I release them. Oh, I've said fourth and final, so I've dictated when this has to be released now. Fourth and final short conversation with poets at the wonderful Verve Poetry Festival in Birmingham. And today I'm joined by the fantastic C.I. Marshall, originally from Northern California, but has travelled here from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, Consuelo was the winner of the Verve Poetry Competition 2018. And we're going to begin with a reading of that poem. Thank you, David. Myself as a Playboy Bunny, San Francisco Playboy Club. Black fishnet tights on legs that seems to stretch clear to Treasure Island. Dishwater hair spiraled up into a French roll. Never go wrong, cover girl makeup icing my face. Maybelline triple thick mascara coating my lashes like fresh macadam on your pony's hooves. If you could see me, you would know that Tabby, the Hutch mother, ordered a Fredericks of Hollywood blow-up girdle and matching bra for me to wear under the cutaway bunny costume. Leaning over to hear a man's order in a husky voice, my rabbit ears would transform into horns, the man now a goateed goat on hind legs, budding heads, the odor of musk almost enough to knock everyone flat over. Is it perfectly clear to you how the click clack of my high heels on polished wood never slowed down to shoot the breeze with guys wearing suits from Wilkes Bashford with shoes of calfskin shipped from across the Atlantic. Here is what really happened. Pulling on a pair of men's shorts, danskin leotard and Nikes, I ran the Mayor's Cup marathon. And on a stage in Golden Gate Park, Mayor Moscone, a month before he was shot, placed a gold medal over my head, saying I was fast, fast as an autumn wind whipping the bay. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Do you know, I, I used to always say to people, I don't care about first and last lines. Don't keep telling me that poems need to begin and end well if there's enough meat in the middle of them. But people keep contradicting me by writing really excellent last lines, and I really love that fast, fast as an autumn wind whipping the bay. Would you mind explaining a bit to the audience and to our listeners how this poem came about? I've been wanting to write this poem, trying to think, uh, I guess, uh, maybe for, f well, probably for 45 years. And I didn't start writing until 20 years ago, so I've had this in my running around in my head. 
because I actually did interview to be a Playboy bunny at the San Francisco Playboy Club, which is really hysterical. And so the poem's supposed to be funny, and people don't laugh, but maybe that's because they don't remember the Playboy Club or they weren't. Um, and an interesting thing I, I told the audience and those of you who heard me when I read, I just love this. Um, I'm very interested in architecture. And the 1966 Playboy Club in London was the final design of the Bauhaus architect Walter Gropius, which I find to be very, very amusing. He was a very serious man and a very, um, you know, his, his work was all concerned with light and space and it's, it's beautiful if you've never seen it. So I thought that was interesting. So um, what happened was I had never been able to write this poem and so when I saw the verb contest, I think I saw it on Twitter, and I really wanted to, um, I thought cities, yeah, I know about cities, and San Francisco is one of my favorite cities. It's, if you haven't been there, it's very, very beautiful. It's got beautiful bridges, and uh, the bay is beautiful, and it's got the best coffee in the world, and it's got steep hills, and great car dealers, and, um, and of course now it's kind of too expensive to live there, but, but anyway, that's what happened, and I sat down, and I, you know, obviously they didn't hire me for obvious reasons. So I had to put an ending to it. And I was a very serious marathon runner. And I remembered, I just had this vivid image of, and this was just before um, the AIDS crisis hit. It was in 78. And uh, I had this vivid memory of Mayor Moscone placing, it's on a ribbon, the gold medal around my head. And then a month later, he and another supervisor, Harvey Milk, were shot in their offices. So I guess it was a great thing for me to do so well in the marathon, but it was also very tragic and very American that they were shot. Yes. You said that this obviously been germinating in your head for a very long time. Is that usual for your writing practice? I, I think someone who's lived the type of life I've had, uh, which has been extremely um, varied and extremely different than most people's lives, <laughs> When you get to a certain age, you these things just keep coming up in your head. And you think, you know, these things are... And I teach, so I love to tell the students about, you know, things that happened when I was younger, or the same age they were, and how different it was then. So, yes, uh, it's, it's kind of... Um, I have a lot of f food for fodder, I guess we'd say in the States. Um, I have a lot of experiences, a lot of really unusual people. Some of those people... Um, are quite well-known people. Uh, I just heard a young woman out in the street. You have great music here. I just, and she was singing Free Falling. And I'm just a huge Tom Petty fan. And I just got in. I don't know what the money means here. So I just grabbed the money. <laughs> I don't even know what it was. I just threw it in her guitar case. Cause, and I just told her, I said, yeah, Tom Petty forever. I'll get off on a tangent. But I was, I was on the strip in the 60s. Um, the Rolling Stones were walking down the sidewalk. I saw Jim Morrison and Whiskey A Go-Go, and there was 25 people there. And I've written a poem about him, and that's another poem that I haven't completed. I mean, I've stuck away someplace. I once saw the ordinary boys walking across Clapham Common. <laughs> that sounds so. good to me. <laughs> Very self-indulgent self of me. Um, I was wondering if 
there's a connection between the long distance running and the germination of ideas because I'm a middle and long distance runner myself and I have a very similar um, relationship to writing as well I think in that I don't write for a while and then things have to sit with me for a while. When I ran marathons I didn't use my mind I wrote a splits on my this is way before I mean the, the watches weren't that good so I would take a sharpie and write my splits which would be my times that I was supposed to be you know 10 miles 20 miles 25 miles that whole thing but I didn't use my mind I ran Boston I mean I ran too many way too many is probably one of the problems but uh, in terms of brain cells but um, what I learned uh, later in life I I couldn't run anymore because you deteriorate the vertebrae in your spine from the impact and no one told us that but I found that out so I started doing yoga I got my certificate I'm very interested in that and the biggest thing that yoga taught me was uh, introducing my body to my mind and having them being the best of friends. And because I've been able to do that through the practice of yoga, and actually I'm stronger now probably than I was when I was running 125 miles a week. And uh, the breath, the breath is also, I didn't, I wasn't really cognizant of my breath when I ran, which sounds absurd, but I wasn't. So it's that, it's that blending of the mind and the body that running, I wasn't either wasn't conscious of it or I didn't use it, but now I use it a lot in my writing, a lot. I mean, uh, it it makes yeah. me sit down. It, it there's a lot of things that I I use that balancing of my mind and that being able to tell my mind my mind what to do and it will actually do it. That point that you made about writing the the split times on your wrist. I often talk about long distance running to people in terms of it's not a slog in terms of you're not out running 10, 20, 40K. You're breaking it down in your mind into splits and to kilometers or miles, much in the same way that you might break a collection or a manuscript down into smaller pieces and break down yes. the points in your life into smaller yes. parts, manageable yes. parts. Yes. I, I think one thing I would say when he was saying that, it, it triggered again, these cells kick in. I think I can actually grow new ones now. Anyway, the fact that you can pull these things out and they come back to you and you can actually write them and you can and you can control them much better than you could have before and that's a major thing but the other thing that I was going to say too is a discipline I mean there's no way that you can run a marathon unless you're really disciplined and of course that takes some mind control too but that discipline and that time like I have to get this poem in you know the calendar and poets and writers and I always looking at that and I have it on my own calendar and I have all these you know ways to make myself do it and it's that sense of time that big digital clock that they invented I think in I don't know the 80s and I, I always see that because it's on the finish line when you've run a marathon so I always see that digital clock and so that helps me to be able to finish a manuscript to be able to finish a poem to to meet the deadlines talking of finishing we're running quickly out of time right. so we're going to take a second and final poem but I'm really annoyed because I want to keep talking but we're going to have to finish with a poem thank you Consuela okay thank you okay this well, you'll know who it is. It's in the title, so I'll just read it. I could have had you, Dr. Scholl. Someone would have paid cash for my yellow VW bug so I could get a ticket on Air Cosmos to Stuttgart, meeting you, settling down in the Minerva Blue Porsche. After whizzing on the Autobahn, we toast each other in candle glow, 
the crags of our noses, the gleam of our eyes shifting like colossal heads carved from Mount Rushmore. Let's get back to your shoes. You designed them. They made you famous. In the black forests, factories poured them out, shipped them from across the ocean where they sat on shelves in narrow cots for a box. Svelte, like anything in design research, footwear for the minimalist, the uncluttered mind, women with a desire for their toes to grow up free, hills unscarred by leather's razor. United we were by all those muscles surrounding our toes and our forefoot that held on to that wooden sole as we walked. I'm convinced it was your sandals, Dr. Scholl, that needed my calf muscles, sent them pulsating down to Nike Air trail winds over Heartbreak Hill and crossing the Bolston Street finish line. We didn't buy these sandals in frivolous shops in Carmel or San Marino. No, we bought them at drugstores, not chains, but those with names like Mallory's and Olson's and McDougal's. For them, we paid $12.99 a pair, choices of red, white, or navy leather over creamy grained oak. If you dropped your hammer pounding shingles, no need to go down the ladder. Just pull off your Dr. Scholl's. Pound that nail flat into the tar paper. And if someone gives you trouble like a kid brother or big sister, the town billy goat or an excited boyfriend, off goes the sandal. No one to bother you after that. It's soul slamming into a finger, hoof, or better yet, someone's bare naked head. Thank you to CI Marshall. Thank you to Verve 2018. Um, I love this festival. Brilliant. That was CI Marshall. He stuck around till the very end. Grab a biscuit, etc., etc. So this anthology I was telling you about. I'm not going to list all the names of the poets in the book because there are too many, but just as a little taster, we've got work from Helen Mort, Travis Alabanza, Melissa Lee Houghton, Nick McCoa, Luke Kennard, Karani Baruka, Zaina Hashembeck, Susie Dickey and Mary Jean Chan, to name but nine of the 28 poets. If you want to know more about the book or what else is coming up in the series, then get over to lunapoetrypodcast.com where you can also find a full transcript of this episode. You can also find us at silent underscore tongue on Twitter or Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. This episode and the accompanying transcript were made possible with the generous support of Arts Council England, specifically the South West Office. And as I said earlier, if you like what we do, then do tell your friends it helps a lot. And if you want to go even further, then why not leave us a review over on iTunes? Thanks again to Snazzy Rat for the music. I'll be back at the end of August with episode 117. These episode numbers are so far beyond anything I ever thought I'd achieved, they seem a little ridiculous now. But in episode 117, I'm going to be chatting to Andrew McMillan about his brilliant second collection, Playtime. Thanks for listening. I still can't believe anyone does. Much love. Bye.